we got the alternative energy right. on a nuclear free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show. I'm Michaela and in the studio with me today I've got Lavanya and Mayu. So on the line we've also got Dr Jim Green and today we're going to start off talking a little bit about the Fukushima disaster because the 11th of March marked nine years since the nuclear accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan and of course this is really important for us to keep our eyes on what's happening with the cleanup and we know that Australian uranium was in that reactor and is continuing to cause contamination there. So later on in the show we'll have more of a discussion with our special guest today, Mayu Seto, who's from Hiroshima. But first up, let's uh, have a little chat with Dr Jim Green now. Hi Jim, Lavanya here. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, that's a pleasure, Lavanya. Um, yeah, so this week, as Michaela just said, marks um, in March 11, mark nine years since the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Nine years on, can you tell us a bit about um, where the rehabilitation and cleanup is at and how it's impacting the affected communities? Yeah, well, it's, it's a bit of a shambles. It hasn't been going well at all. And the framing for all of this is the upcoming Summer Olympics in Japan, so the government has been much concerned to bury the problems associated with the Fukushima disaster, and that includes pretending that the clean-up of the Fukushima prefecture is going a lot better than it really is. And the second part of it is the appalling treatment of evacuees, and the government's aim there are to artificially deflate or reduce the number of true evacuees from the Fukushima disaster. And the second aspect of it is simply cost-cutting, so they're uh, reducing and cutting off payments for Fukushima evacuees. So there's a whole set of problems framed around this issue of of what I call forgetting Fukushima in the lead-up to the Summer Olympics, which may not happen anyway because of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And what are some tactics that the government has used to, um, you know, meddle with the... Um, evidence of how much contamination there is and what the ongoing contamination is doing to the communities? Well, some of it is pretty simple and pretty basic. So there are a lot of radiation monitoring posts throughout the Fukushima prefecture. But in some cases, what they've done is simply pick an area where there's relatively low level of contamination and put one of the monitoring posts there. And they've also cleaned up the immediate surrounds of those monitoring posts so you could just take a short walk away from a monitoring post and find that radiation levels are much much higher than you would be led to believe by those monitoring posts and Japanese citizens are well aware of this chicanery so an awful lot of people are doing their own citizen science and carrying their own radiation monitors uh, so they were uh, they're aware of these uh, of these games being played by the Japanese government to artificially deflate the actual level of contamination. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now that the Olympics is, has been, you know, might not go ahead, do you think this is an opportunity? Does this provide the opportunity for those groups and activists to really dig into the problem a bit deeper? And is this might be, could this be a positive opportunity for them to um, really get to the bottom of the problem? 
So, I mean, we have to have hope because there's not much else with this situation. Uh, conversely, if the Olympics had gone ahead, it would have been an opportunity to shine a spotlight on the real problems that are still existing at Fukushima. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just have to see how it plays out. But there's still an awful lot of activity. Uh, it has to be said that, you know, the ninth anniversary of the Fukushima disaster came and passed last mm -hmm. week without an awful lot of attention and without the uh, huge worldwide commemorations and protests that we saw in the early years after the Fukushima disaster. But there's so much work going on, and I guess if there's a silver lining to this, it's that the uh, Japanese nuclear industry has all but collapsed, and of the 54 reactors that were operating before the Fukushima disaster, only nine are currently operating. Uh, so there's much less prospect of a, a second Fukushima happening in Japan. Um, but yeah, no, it's just really a real grind now for people within and outside Japan to get the problems at least partially fixed. Mm -hmm. And also, um, as you said, you know, not a lot of commemoration happened this week, but as we're commemorating here in 3CR, is there, is there anything in particular you'd like to mention that we should learn from and reflect um, as a global community, but also specifically as a Victorian and Australian community, given what the nuclear landscape in Australia at the moment? Yeah, well, we're having our own bizarre debate in Australia which uh, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. It's been driven by uh, ultra-conservative culture warriors pushing nuclear power, but I think everyone who's halfway sane understands that nuclear power, apart from its other problems, is is grossly uneconomic, so that's why I think it's going nowhere. But I think the global lesson is that one of the root causes of the Fukushima disaster was hopelessly inadequate regulation of the nuclear industry and so you know the test for the global nuclear industry is whether that has improved and unfortunately it hasn't you can look at countries like china and india and ukraine and many many others and they're not even close to having adequate regulation of their nuclear industries well to extent you could say the same here in australia so yeah, I'm afraid that we are going to have more Fukushima's and as was the case with Fukushima on 11th March 2000, uh, 2011, that once again inadequate regulation will be a root cause of the catastrophic disaster. Mm. Well, Jim, thanks so much for bringing us that little update this morning and it's definitely something that we'll be looking deeper into in uh, further shows. Yeah, that's a pleasure. And now over to you, Mayu. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And um, yeah, we're really lucky to have you uh, visiting Australia for a second time, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And so uh, you are from Hiroshima yes. and grew up there. Mm -hmm. And what got you, I guess, first interested in anti-nuclear activism and... Okay, um, so it was actually nine years ago I first time uh, encountered this issue as a, how to say, as a, a student, a university student at the time. And I was on the boat called Peace Boat, and there was a program um, to uh, raise awareness to the uh, exposure to the radiation. For example, they brought uh, some of the A-bomb survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we traveled around the world with them, and they gave 
uh, their testimonies in many countries we visited. But at the same time, they brought other um, hibakusha who exposed the radiation and suffering. Uh, one of them are from Australia, and they are from Northern Territory, and they were talking about uranium mining in Australia. So for me, um, growing up in Hiroshima, I learned a lot about what happened in Hiroshima, but it was in the past. It was 75 years ago. But I learned for the first time that it's ongoing issue around the world. And my daily life with the electricity maybe affects someone in different places around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's a common thing, I guess, for um people working in the anti-nuclear movement around mm-hmm. the world is thinking about those connections That's that right. um, there are globally from the whole nuclear chain, from uranium mining to nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you tell me, tell us a little bit more about this connection you formed with the Mira traditional owners uh, yes. from Kakadu. Yes. Uh, so I met... Uh, in the boat, I met a girl, uh, kind of similar old as me, and so she was from Northern Territory around Kakadu area, and she was so shy, so I couldn't really <laughs> talk to her at the time with my broken English, but uh, still, it was, uh, how to say, really shocking and moving moment for me that... Um, because I love my hometown so much, but for them, the land is like they're one like part of them. So my attachment to my hometown, kind of how to say, I felt really a uh, strong feeling that it's part of them. But uranium mines, uh, uraniums comes uh, from their land and it's contaminating their land and at the same time contaminating our land in Japan what happened in Fukushima. So, yeah, I really wanted to see them again. So that's why I came to, that's what part of part of the reason why I came to Australia this time. Yeah, so um, you've returned to Australia nine years later mm-hmm. after the, your first Peace Bird experience. Mm-hmm. And did you, and you went up to the Northern Territory yes, to I visit mm-hmm. the Mirai traditional owners? Um, actually, I couldn't really go to, you know, for example, Jabru, the town by myself near the uranium mining. But uh, at least I wanted to see the land. So I just, in, uh, just applied for the national park tour. And with the National Park Tour, I could go to Javru somehow, and I could meet one of the members I met from the Peace Boat. So it was really great. But um, maybe it's not enough time at all to learn all about their lands and all about what's going on. But maybe after nine years, uh, it's might it might be the start of my reconnection to this issue. And um, so, like you said, you know, the electricity in Japan, there's a lot of uh, nuclear power and how it, how you can see the connection and how it directly impacts people even as far as in Kakadu and Australia. Mm-hmm. What is the feeling about energy and alternatives in Japan at the moment? At the moment, mm, it's kind of difficult. So those people who are really uh, cares about the, how to say, risk of nuclear power plants, they care and they change. For example, now we can choose from from what source we can 
get the electricity. So, but still, the dominant electricity company is our dominant. So, and many of people who don't really care about the risk of, who don't really care where these electricity come from, they don't know we can choose the options.、Uh, we we have other options, and so. Unfortunately, still the dominant stream is,、um, you know, those main electricity company, including the nuclear power, as well.、Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's we need to raise the awareness that we can choose. Actually,、um, Mayu, you're also a musician, and I thought maybe we'll take a little break and have a listen to、uh, one of your songs. Okay. 
You're tuned to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. And today in the studio, I'm Michaela, I'm here with my co-host Lavanya, and we've got the beautiful musician and anti-nuclear activist, peace activist Mayu Seto. Tell us a little bit about that song we just heard. Okay, that song was written in Japanese. I wrote this song, and I wrote this song on the boat called Peace Boat, traveling together with atomic bomb survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I wanted to make something what I learned from them, and it's titled Colorful World because we see often black and white photos of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what happened, but actually they were colorful at the time. We have to remember that this is the message of the song. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. So, Mayu, I have a few questions about your campaigning and activism back in Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. You're part of an anti-nukes and peace group called Kakuaka Hiroshima. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that group? Okay, so Kakuwaka Hiroshima is now uh, in the network of ICANN, and we, uh, because, you know, there's a treaty, nuclear ban treaty in UN, it's it's ongoing to, uh, how to say, publish? Mm Mm-hmm. It's um, about ratified. Ratified, but Japanese government haven't ratified yet, so... Mm -hmm. Our mind is why we don't ratify it because we experienced atomic bomb twice and we believe Japanese government should lead the way mm-hmm. somehow to uh, um, nuclear free society. But still, they're kind of under the nuclear umbrella of uh, United States and they don't ratify the treaty. So we just want to ask the Diet members, why don't we join the treaty? Mm-hmm. And we we decided to start from Hiroshima because mm-hmm. we based in Hiroshima. So young people in Hiroshima get together and make a group asking diet members elected in Hiroshima um, to talk about this issue, what mm-hmm. they think about. Mm-hmm. And um, so you mentioned the nuclear umbrella, but mm-hmm. apart from that, what would be the Japanese government's resistance to signing and ratifying this treaty? Apart from that, I think... Every time they we talk to, they mm-hmm. say that we, so that that includes nuclear umbrella things. Includes they we are uh, threatened by mm-hmm. China or we are threatened by North Korea or that kind of narratives as well. Mm-hmm. But um, they often say that. And you're talking about ideals. We talk about real thing that this mm-hmm. narrative also they use. But still, it's really good way to how to say, raise their awareness, because if we don't ask them, this is a treaty, there is a treaty, maybe we can join and please seek for the way. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, it's really important for young people to talk to, directly talk to diet members that Mm -hmm. we want you to um, be keen Mm -hmm. to uh, look for the way. And um, what are some ways in which um, the young people of Hiroshima lobby mm-hmm. there? Do you lobby your local diet members or do you uh, lobby people out in Tokyo? Uh, I mean, are those diet, uh, how to say, um, governmental parliament, how to say, national parliament mm-hmm. members, mm-hmm. diet members, mm-hmm. in they are working in Tokyo, but they sometimes come back to Hiroshima mm-hmm. because they are elected in the, their hometown. So we talk to them mainly in Hiroshima. But not the local government people uh, in the 
central government people. I yeah. see. Okay. <laughs> and um, so is your group, does your group, who is part of your group? I, do you have any connections with Hibakusha? Do you bring their stories to the Diet members? I, yes. Um, so we, as a group, we are a um, group of young people mm-hmm. because Kaku Waka Waka is young in Japanese. Mm-hmm. So, but still... Each of us has a connection, our own connection and backgrounds in Hiroshima. So we have connections to survivors as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you tell us a bit about Hachidorisha? This is the cafe that you work in from. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I'm working in Hachidorisha, and there I have the connection between me and Avon, some of Avon survivors because we have an a event three times a month. Mm-hmm. where we can talk uh, casually with Avon survivors. Those guests from abroad can mm-hmm. talk to them on the table with the lunch or over cafe or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really important moment that it's not far away from you. It's f- who experienced that is the pe- person in front of mm-hmm. you. So it's really important place for me. And also we plan many events mm-hmm. related to issues about nuclear power, nuclear weapons or mm-hmm. politics or mm. any other things cool that sounds so cool i feel like there could be like an anime about this because mm-hmm. you know a lot of animes are based in cafes oh, where see. you like fight nuclear weapons <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds um yeah such a beautiful thing i guess for um survivors who do want to keep sharing their story to have um mm-hmm. yeah right. a space space to do that and are there a lot of uh, A-bomb survivors that, that are still wanting to pass on those stories? Let's say um, there are not a lot of, but there are some of people who can share their stories. And it's really, um, how to say, precious opportunity for us now that we can listen to them because in few years it's more and more difficult to listen to them in first hand. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I know there's been groups of survivors of the British atomic tests mm-hmm, um, right. that happened here in Australia that have travelled to Hiroshima to mm-hmm. meet with A-bomb survivors there That's too. Great. Does that happen with many other countries as well? Um, I hope it happens, and maybe in each group in Hiroshima or Nagasaki or in Japan has connection to different countries, and it's really important we cannot really say officially like we are connected but those you know grassroots connection let's say are ongoing in many places but we maybe we should more more have more mm-hmm. of this opportunity especially between young people as well to continue the relationship yeah mm-hmm. amazing well um Mayu is there anything else that you wanted to share with our radioactive show listeners here not really. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, it was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thanks so much. We've just been speaking with Mayu Seto and Lavanya Pant and myself, Michaela Stubbs. Earlier on the show, we had Dr. Jim Green. So thanks to everyone for joining us on the show today. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, produced at 3CR in Fitzroy and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network.
And, yeah, if you want to listen back to this show or share it with other people, you can find it on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. And please, if you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com and that's all we have time for today but please join us again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues and we'll go out today with a song Kakadu by Black Bella Music listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.